Welcome to the Close But No Cigar Sports Podcast, the podcast where we delve into the stories of sports teams and athletes that came close to glory but never won the big one. Today, we're going to look at the 1990 to 1992 Pirates, the Pittsburgh Pirates of Baseball. I'm your host, Gen Xer and sports geek, Peter Shaw, and I'm joined remotely by sports anchor Rob King, who has been at AT&T Sportsnet in Pittsburgh for over 20 years reporting on the Pirates and the Penguins. Side note, Penguins are my personal fave hockey team in the world. Um, fun fact about him, he was an all-conference quarterback at Wash U in St. Louis in 1988 before he became a sportscaster. So I'm going to say go Bears for those Wash U. All right. As long as they beat the Maroons at the University of Chicago, we're all good. Yeah, those, those jerks. <laughs> so, um, so I'm, I'm very happy and honored to have Rob join the podcast. I want to uh, thank thank him for taking the time out. And I'm just going to get going into the, the backstory as I do on this podcast. So way back when, the Pirates were originally named the Alleghenies uh, from their founding in 1882 to 1891. So this is going way back. And then they change your name to the Pirates. Now, the story behind that nickname that most people don't know is that there was no, first, there's no rich history of pirates robbing ships along the Allegheny, the Monongahela, or the Ohio. Yes, those are the three rivers. They, what they did was they lured Lou Bierbauer, who was a star second baseman for the rival Philadelphia A's, um, when they didn't protect him properly. So the A's went to the league office, filed an official complaint, and stated that Pittsburgh signed him and that 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 practice was piratical, which is a great word, but they were never found guilty by the league of doing anything illegal. And the Alleghenies uh, embraced this controversy, embraced the nickname and renamed themselves the Pirates for the 1891 season, which I think is very cool. Someone, someone goes after you and you just, you just take that and you make it into a much cooler nickname because the Alleghenies was definitely a lame nickname. We can all agree. So these early Pirates were successful. They won the NL title three years in a row. Even, they even participated in the first World Series, which was a, a best of nine with the Boston Americans, and they lost five to three. Now, you probably don't know much about the Boston Americans, but they had some pitcher named Cy Young, who may or may not have been a good pitcher and may or may not have had a big award named after him. And those Boston Americans changed their name to the Boston Red Sox in 1908, who would go on to uh, – Win a little, lose for a long time, and then win a lot. Well, a couple of things that uh, yes. if I can if I can uh, jump in here that your your fans might be interested in, you know, part of the reason the Pirates had a dynasty in 1900, beginning in 1900, was that they merged with the Louisville Colonels, who were owned by Barney Dreyfus. And a couple of things happened. First of all, the Colonels had all the great players. They had Honus Wagner, Fred Clark, a couple of Hall of Famers, Tommy Leach, Deacon Philippe, who was a great pitcher for the Pirates, but. Uh, Barney Dreyfus had wooden stands, and they got a couple fires. And in fact, in 1899, his stadium burned to the ground, and they were forced to play the Louisville Colonels the rest of the season on the road. And when Barney Dreyfus came to Pittsburgh and he wanted to build a new stadium, he eventually took over ownership of the Pirates' uh, sole ownership. He remembered that burning down of his stands in Louisville, so he built the first modern stadium, which of course was Forbes Field, opened in 1909 for the Pirates, which was the year of their first championship. Another thing that happened in 1903, if you talk to a Red Sox historians, uh, of course, they were the Americans then, they will tell you that the Royal Rooters for the Boston Americans had a big part in them winning the 1903 World Series. They had a, there was a song at the time called Tessie. Uh, Tessie, I love you madly were, were the lyrics. And the Royal Rooters changed the lyrics to, you know, Honus, you play so badly. 
um, that sort of thing. They brought a, a little band with them. I mean, different <laughs> fandom back in those days. And so they, they stake a claim to having uh, had an effect on the Pirates that helped the Americans win. And by the way, the Red Sox then had the Dropkick Murphys, a, kind of a punk band from right, the right. Boston area, do a, a revved up version, a modernized version of the song Tessie to honor the 1903 Royal Rooters from Boston. That, thank you. I did not know much of that at all. I know about Barney Drivers, but not about that. And I, I did have a Guinness or two in the Dropkick Murphys home bar in Boston, which name is nice. me a few years ago, but uh, they were not there. So uh, as Rob alluded to, the Pirates did win their first World Series in 1909 over Detroit. They had Honus Wagner, who's famous, has a statue outside of PNC Park right now. And he was kind of a big deal at the time when everyone ran around with flannel uniforms and the trading cards were only in cigarette packs, so I don't think kids were trading in them. Actually, maybe, maybe the kids were smoking back then. So after that, really, the Pirates had few and far between uh, in the post, uh, successes in the postseason. They won the World Series in 25 over the Washington Senators in seven games then lost it in 1927 when they were swept by the Murderers Row Yankees, led by Ruth and Gehrig and Tony Lazzari. And you remember, just remember one thing. It, there were no playoffs besides the World Series until 1969 when divisional play was installed. So you either won your league and played in the World Series or you didn't. So if you came in second, you might as well have come in last. So Ricky Bobby would totally get that. So a couple of th- can I get a couple more things to throw in here for you. Um, you talked about Honus Wagner. He didn't like the idea of kids potentially smoking cigarettes. So he okay, asked that right. he be taken out of those cigarette packs, which is why that one particular card of his is so valuable and fetches if people find it over a million dollars at auction. Um, I think uh, I, it may still be the most expensive card ever made. I think it is. A uh, card sold recently that got a lot of money, but um, that was a big thing. And then, the 1925 Pirates became the first ever team in any sport to come back from a 3-1 deficit when they beat Washington Senators and Walter Johnson, uh, Kai Kai Kyler, the big hit late in that game, uh, game seven to help the Pirates win it. And then in the 30s, the closest they ever came was, um, I believe it was 1936 when Gabby Hartnett hit the famous uh, homer in the gloaming. But yeah, fallow years for the Pirates for sure as I know you're getting into after getting swept by the the great Yankees team in 27. You know, they had a few and far between successes and they didn't come back to the world series until 1960 when second baseman and hall of famer, Bill Mazeroski hit his famous game seven bottom of the ninth home run to stun the powerhouse Yankees at Forbes field, the first modern concrete field as Rob mentioned. And if you're ever in Pittsburgh, you got to go to the left field wall, which remains intact. It's still standing right behind the University of Pittsburgh campus, and there's a historic plaque. It's really just a remnant of a, of a bygone era, which a lot of those stadiums were eventually replaced by those cookie-cutter, knee-destroying uh, concrete turf places like Three Rivers and Riverfront and the Vet. On the anniversary every year, actually, a bunch of old Pirates fans sit around in front of the wall and listen to a radio telecast of the home run being called. So... That is one of these seminal Pittsburgh moments. And Bill Mazeroski is still a legend there and I actually have a signed baseball by him. So, and, and by the way, one of the nicest human beings you'd ever want to meet. The that is what I've heard. I, I, had a, I had a chance to do a special on them years ago, and they're a great, great group of guys. And just one of those teams, you know, they hadn't been very good. In 1952, they had the worst team in Major League history. Uh, Branch Rickey decided to go with all young players. But out of that group, 
were guys as the, as the decade wore on, like Dick Grote, you know, Elroy Face, uh, players of that ilk that became really a, a, a the backbone of the 1960 team. It took them to 58 till they started to compete and Danny Murtaugh came in and was the manager. And there's a, a famous story of Mickey Mantle crying after the 1960 World Series because he was so convinced. You know, those were three huge blowouts by the, right, Yan- the Yankees. The Yankees and won four, games by 10 runs or so. Yeah, and four close games for the Pirates. And I remember interviewing uh, Dickie Schofield and asking about that. And they were so convinced. They're such a scrappy group. And let's face it, they had Clemente, they had Mazeroski, Hall of Famers. They had a lot of near Hall of Famers, um, really good players, uh, Vern Law, um, Dick mm-hmm. Road. I mean, they had some outstanding players on that team. But Dickie Schofield said, we could have played them all winter and we would have won one more game than they did. So they were convinced that they were not uh, – it wasn't an upset, that they were the better team, that they, they knew how to find a way to win, and, of course, they did. Yeah, and they, you kind of need that self-belief. So that's – that. even though I'm a Yankees fan having been born in the Bronx, but even I uh, respect, you know, respect that game and the reverence that Pirates fans have for it. Through the uh, 60s, they were – after that, they were mostly a forgettable team. They had great players – they had Roberto Clemente, who you mentioned, who was a perennial all-star, gold glove winner, NL MVP in 66. And that year, the Pirates actually won 92 games, but they were three games off the lead of the Dodgers, so they didn't win the NL pennant. And there were no playoffs for them to make, so that's a real travesty. They also won over 90 games in 65, but fell three behind the Dodgers and Giants. They also had Willie Stargell, who was uh, getting going in his career, he was no slouch at all. He, he was a big power hitter, went on to become a great leader of the team later in the 70s, where most of his, um, where all of his postseason glory came. So Pirates of the 70s flipped the script and had a great run. They won six NL East titles, and they won two World Series, uh, bookending the decade in 71 and 79, both against the unfortunate Baltimore Orioles. And the, the 79 championship, the one where, um, even though I was a Yankee fan, I really enjoyed watching that on TV. That was the uh, the We Are Family team of Pop Stargell, Bill Madlock, Dave the Cobra Parker, Phil Garner with that awesome mustache, John the Candyman Candelaria with a much cheesier uh, mustache, looked like an eighth grader who hadn't shaved in a month, Bruce Keeson and Kent Tekulvi Teak, who is my second favorite reliever of all time besides Goose Gossage. But those guys were they had a good time. The wives were always dancing on the dugouts after every win. It's, it seemed like a very festive team, and um, it seemed like a great time. You know, and, and by the way, they were a very festive team. So 71 and 79, you know, both 71 obviously is known for Clemente and then Steve Blass with the two um, unbelievable performances. And you're right. I mean, the Pirates were really competitive in the 60s. There's a lot of decades, a lot of decades in which the Pirates were not competitive. The 40s, they were not competitive. Um, the 50s, they were not competitive. Unfortunately, we've seen uh, recently some decades where the Pirates were not competitive. But the 60s, they had solid teams. And the 70s, they're great teams. And there was a year, one year, in which Goose Gossage pitched for uh, the early, Yeah, early in his career. He was a closer. Teak, uh, Kent Colby was my old um, broadcast partner uh, for, I don't know, eight or ten years we worked together. Uh, Jim Rooker was on that 79 team. I worked with him uh, prior to that. Great group of guys. Really crazy clubhouse and those guys mm-hmm. would say anything to each other do anything to each other <laughs> no holds barred some of the stories that I can't tell here were hilarious by the way the 71 team uh was pretty funny too when you have a guy like Steve Blast in the middle of things 
things you're about one of the funniest human beings on the planet yeah, he's um, funny i've seen him interviewed about oh he's a funny he guy. Is a fun, and then when you get him off mike yeah, he could be he could be funny as well um when he can kind of let loose a little bit but you know great great teams for the pirates and then the 79 team we talked about the 25 team being the first to come back for a three to one deficit of course the 79 pirates did that against that great Baltimore Orioles team. Yeah, so that was yeah. So it was a good time to be a Pirates fan in the in the seventies. Now, speaking of good times, I just got to mention one of the true characters of that time that most people do know about if you're a baseball fan. So from '68 to '75, and then he pitched a few innings in his last year of '79. The Pirates had a pitcher named Doc Ellis, D O C K, and he was a true character of the game. He was a great pitcher at times, but he was quite mercurial. He's most famous for pitching a no-hitter while on LSD June 12th, 1970 against the Padres. Now, when that was released, when that became known um, in the public, imagine imagine being a Padre who got no-hit by that guy to find out <laughs> totally tripping balls, pitched, pitched a no-hitter against you. So, so, so I, I had a chance to ask Doc about that. Uh-huh. And uh, he, he said, I think he was kind of, um, you know, a day or two away from that. He lost a day. He said he left. He left the team and went to, I think it was L.A., mm-hmm. and, and did some partying. And he didn't realize that he somehow said, you know, I, I didn't know what day it was. So he showed up at the ballpark, and, and then, you know, that story obviously became that story. But, you know, Doc had a, he had a Cadillac that had a big, like, belt strap over the top. Um, he came out one day just to see what his manager, Danny Murtaugh, who was an old-school guy, would do. He came out in hair curlers um, <laughs> out, out under the field. There was a game against the Cincinnati Reds in which he popped his head into the Reds' dugout, uh, clubhouse before the game because they, the two teams were, were having a feud. Oh, they hated said, each other, I yeah. I want you to know, I'm going to hit every guy that goes up there. So uh, hit the first guy, hit the second guy. I think the third guy somehow ducked four pitches, hit the fourth guy, and, and then out he went. Um, he, he was a true character. And I, you know, I was talking to him once about the 71 All-Star game. He gave up a monster rocket to Reggie Jackson. Mm-hmm. Hit a light stanchion and – in Detroit, there in was Detroit, a right. Decks. I mean, it was. I mean, it was out. It hit that light stanchion in like one second. It was just blazed <laughs> out there and bounced back onto the field. Who knows how far the ball would have gone? And uh, Doc told me that he um, he was uh, a little inebriated on the mound for that All Star game, having um, taken part in some some beverages prior to the event. So the doctor, you know, <laughs> again, you never really knew. He was he was a great pitcher. Uh, unfortunately, we lost him a few years ago. Yeah, really I know, a, entertaining, smart, just a wonderful guy to be around. I'm sorry that uh, we lost him, but he was definitely a character. Yeah, true character of the game. So I just, I did see, Rob, did you see the uh, documentary about him, No No? I did. Uh, I did. I thought it was great. And then yeah. um, I was watching, uh, I, I wish I could remember the the, the guy's name, um, and maybe I'll, I'll come up with it. a folk artist who wrote a song about that and played it. I saw him. He opened for John Prine, uh, another folk artist, in concert. I don't know, maybe ten years ago in Pittsburgh. And oh, that's funny. Way, he said, "Hey, I'm going to play this song that I wrote about Doc Ellis and his uh, his no hitter in 1971." And he fired into it. it was that's it was funny? Wonderful. Yeah, that is great. So Doc Ellis, true character. So the Pirates definitely had some characters throughout the year. Had some glory. Mid 70s, they were also known for uh, resuscitating the ugliest baseball hat ever created, the pillbox hat. Oh, come on now. Come I think it's now. so ugly. It's, oh, it's old. Uh, I think it's ugly. still loved here in Pittsburgh. I know it's loved, but it's basically kind of square. It almost looks like it's a Civil War era hat. It's got these horizontal stripes, I know. 
It is um, it, to me. It's like the uh, Pittsburgh Steeler bumblebee old throwback uniforms. It's just historic but ugly. But we'll leave it. We'll leave it there. So the '80s were not kind to the Pirates at all. It's another one of their down decades. Every team won an NL East title that decade, except the Buccos and the Montreal Expos. They had four seasons above 500, with and their best year was 1988, when they actually won 85 games, three above 500. But they finished 15 games behind the Mets. So even though they they had their best uh, year in the whole decade. Now this team. Uh, let me jump in. Todd Snyder, sure. America's favorite pastime. Sorry, that, uh, that's the new song in the Armistice. Sorry, I'll check it out. So, so we're talking about you're, you're leading up to ninety, and um, and and I know. And Sid Thrift uh, took over as a general manager of that team, and came in late in the nineteen eighty seven season. Uh, this is a story that Bob Walk told me, and said, you know, all right, guys, what are your what are your goals for the rest of the year? There are you know thirty two games left or something. And Jim Gott, the Pirates closer, said. I think we, you know, we got all fired up and said, I think we should win 25 of those games. Everyone looked around like, how the heck is this team going to win 25 of our last 32 games? Well, they went on a roll in 87, and that springboarded them in 88. And in 88, they started to put together talent, and they started to pick up some of the guys that I know we're going to be talking about, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, as, as the next year or two went by. Doug Drabeck, um, who won the Cy Young, of course. John Smiley, Bobby Bonilla, um, you know, drafting Barry Bonds. Um, you know, they, they Josh, uh, uh, Jay Bell at shortstop. So yeah. he started to accumulate some of that talent. Um, not as good in 89, but um, obviously in 1990, they began to take off. Right. So, yeah, we got to give, so we got to give the GM thrift some, some props for really building that up. So just a quick more thing about the 80s Pirates. The 80s Pirates uh, had their own drug issues, to be sure. If they could have their own ESPN 30 for 30 or VH1 behind the music, it, I, it was so bad at one time that the pirate parrot mascot, the guy in the suit, was the middleman between Coke dealers and the players. And the parrot mascot, after this this became a big trial, he even admitted he was coked up during some of the games. So we could agree that that was one dirty bird jumping up and down on the dugout. Uh, as Rob mentioned, um, the 80s were not a total loss. They really started to build their foundation. They brought in young players. They, draft, they drafted well. They got guys coming up through the minor league. They brought in Jim Leland as their manager in 1986. Jim Leland was foul mouth, was this chain smoker, took no crap from nobody. I found on the web, there's him berating Barry Bonds in spring training for not, not trying so hard in the batting cage. He just curses him out. And it's, yeah, I, I, it's ridiculous. I, you know, he, he thought he disrespected, um, Leland thought he disrespected Bill Verdon, a venerable coach, center fielder on the 1960 team who uh, right, right. managed the Astros and a uh, really good guy, the quail, um, who Andrew McCutcheon uh, um, became friends with years later. Great guy. And, um, and Jim Leland had just had enough. I don't think Jim Leland wants to be known as that kind of guy. And by the way, I forgot in the, 80, the, 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 the trade with the Cardinals that began it all. Well, when they picked, they traded Tony Pena, the most popular right, player. Right, to, to bring in Van, Van Slyke. Van Slyke, uh, Lavalier, and, and Mike Dunn on the mound. Um, but, you know, Jim Leland, beyond all that, and, and Jim Leland's players absolutely loved him. And that mm-hmm. includes Barry Bonds um, because he was a straight shooter, but he also totally honest, told you what he thought, but he also communicated. So he didn't, he didn't say – he didn't think what he thought and, and kept it to himself mm-hmm. – he would let people know what he thought, and he made it a point to try to talk to every guy every single day. Go around, how you doing, uh, what's going on, let them know, hey, this is what I'm planning. 
today, or this is, you know, whatever, this is how you're doing, whatever the trends are recently. Communication was really, really important to Jim Leland. And I think you could go through pretty much all of his teams that he managed and find out he was, he was really revered. That's great. So I didn't, I didn't know, I knew he was revered, but I didn't know for that reason. And obviously that's how you build a great team culture. If everybody feels like they have the ear of the manager and that he's invested in them, then, then they're going to perform better. So, and that's why he was, he's, he had such a successful managing career, you know, with the pirates, uh, with the Marlins and with the tigers, he, he was successful for a long time. So that, that speaks to that. Fast forward a little bit to 1986. So in May of 86, some 21-year-old hotshot graduates from Arizona State with a degree in criminology, interestingly enough. His dad was Bobby Bonds. He played in the majors 14 years, won some gold gloves, some all-stars. I had a few of Bobby Bonds' baseball cards. And then his, so his son was Barry. Barry was a bit leaner than Bobby, was fast, was strong, had a great arm. His godfather was Willie Mays, so he had that going for him, which was nice. And just a side note, my buddy and I, our senior year in high school, we went to see a Mets-Pirates doubleheader on a Saturday afternoon, and it was actually Barry Bonds' ninth and tenth games ever in the majors. I dug back and found out that that was his the first ten games of his career. I got to see game nine and ten at Shea. And in the first game of the doubleheader, he went two for four with a home run and a double. And I looked at my buddy David and I said, yeah, this guy, this guy's pretty good. And at that point, we kind of figured out it was Bobby Bond's kid. We said, yeah, he's pretty good. And, you know, I think we were right. I wouldn't call us baseball visionaries, but we, as soon as we saw him hit and run, we're like, ooh, watch out for this guy. So yeah. rookie, he got 16 home runs, which is second best on the team and led the team with 30 stolen bases. The same year, the Pirates, they had this pretty slow first baseman who was a pretty solid hitter named Sid Bream that they added. They acquired, uh, as Rob mentioned earlier, Doug Drabeck from the Yankees. The Yankees thought Doug Drabeck Drabeck was no great shakes, but obviously became a really superb pitcher for both the Pirates and the Astros. And there was this shaky fielding, hard-hitting first baseman that the White Sox had, and the uh, Pirates dealt for him, and his name was Bobby Bonilla. In 87, uh, we already talked about the trade. Pena, who was an all-star, I don't think was probably that popular trade right when it happened, but it ended up being a great move for the Pirates. They brought in Andy Van Slyke, who was a superb fielder and also a good hitter. They brought in Spanky, Mike Lavalier, who was a solid catcher, both physically and defensively, and Mike Dunn, who we're not going to say much more about him. So they really had all their building blocks in place. By 1990, they rounded out the infield. I would say this infield was just so- was solid but not spectacular. These guys had flashes of being spectacular at times, but you had Jeff King and Jay Bell. Most people that know those names are the guys that collected baseball cards like me or guys that played Stratomatic baseball like me or the Yinzers who sit up in the upper decks and drink icy light and then take the tea back to Dormont. Those are the people that remember those guys. So they had a great pitching staff at that point that was built up by Sid Thrift. They had Dre Beck, Neil Heaton, John Smiley, and Bob Walk who um, was a workman out there. And I believe he's still a broadcaster for the Pirates. Is that correct? Right. Yep. Yeah. And so he's, he's become like a Pirates lifer. And he's, he's a good, he was a good announcer and he was a great pitcher. This team finished, unfortunately, with a mediocre middle of the road, 74 wins. But there was real hope that they were going to move, move in to the 90s and have some success. So that was the appetizer onto the uh, main course of the story of the 1990 season. These Pirates in 1990 were fast out of the gates, and they won 70% of their games in April and established them as the first-place team in the NL East from April 21st onward. 
They only fell to second for 14 games of the whole season, and they were only out by two games at the most. So the Mets really were hanging in at this point. They still had some of their core from from the mid-'80s. And this Mets hung in, but by September 4th, the Pirates retook the lead and did not relinquish it, finishing four games ahead. The uh, stubborn Mets with 95 wins. This year, Barry Bonds was 25. He had been getting better and better every year. He led the team with a 301 average, 33 home runs, 52 stolen bases. And see, 52 stolen bases, if you saw Barry later in his career, you wouldn't think that. But this is before Barry discovered the quote-unquote weight room, and he was lean and fast on the base paths. He was second on the team with RBIs with 114. So this was really his breakout year. He, won, he was an all-star, won the Gold Glove, the Silver Slugger Award, which is given to the best offensive player at each position, and was the NFL, the NL, NFL, NL MVP. He's probably athletic enough to have played in the NFL, actually. He would, you, know, you, you mentioned those stats and the speed-power combination. Um, the fact that he was an unbelievable fielder. Really, he should have been – he should have won the MVP in 91 also, although Terry Pendleton had a great year for the Braves. He wound up winning it. Another tremendous fielder. But really, Bond should have won all three. You know, a I couple agree. things happened for that 90 team that were important. They had a huge comeback down 5-1. to one. They scored five runs in the ninth inning on Memorial Day against the Dodgers. And that was a one of those wins. You know, every team seems to have one that kind of – sparks him and start, mm-hmm. sparks some uh, belief, a team that's on the way up. Hey, that was, a, that was a win that made us believe we could do anything. And the Mets, Doc Gooden had referred to them a couple of years earlier, had referred to the Pirates as a little league team. And so the, the Pirates were, the, the players remember that. The fans certainly remember mm-hmm. that. Um, the Cardinals of the late 80s hated the Mets. Everybody hated those Mets teams. That's true. Um, I grew up, you grew up as a Yankees fan. I grew up in New York as a Mets fan. And they, they, were, uh, they were brash. They were, they were cocky. They had their own issues. Are you talking right, about right. Pirates, they had their own issues in that club. With drugs, yeah. Uh, but um, they, they, were, uh, they were easy to dislike. And so mm-hmm. I think that the, the fact that they beat out the Mets was just a feather in the cap of that 1990 Pirates team. That was doubly sweet, doubly sweet. The only time I really cheered hard for the Mets was when they beat the Red Sox in the 86 World Series, being a Yankees fan. Uh, Bonds was amazing. Andy Van Slyke was the Gold Glove winner. He was two years removed from his best power numbers, but he still had a really good year. He hit 17 home runs, 77 RBIs. Bobby Bonilla, teammate of Bonds and Van Slyke, was second in MVP voting behind uh, Bonds, and he knocked in 120 runs, hit 280, and had 32 home runs. So talk about a one-two punch or a one-two-three punch in the outfield. Yeah. Infield put up some good numbers. King, Bell, and Bream all knocked in 52 runs at least. They had a really good bench, too. Don Slott was their backup catcher from those amazing uh, the Mets, the Let's Go Mets of 86. They had Wally Backman, who's a scrappy utility infielder. He also had Gary Reedus, first baseman, who was, uh, you know, who would platoon in the infield and help out. So I know a lot of people are sabermetric fans out there, but I'm just, uh, and I really like Moneyball, saw the movie, read the book, but I'm, I'm mostly going to talk about RBIs and average and wins and losses, not WARs or other stuff like that. So I'm sorry if that disappoints anybody listening. So the Pirates had the, has some great hitters in the outfield, a solid infield, but Doug Drabeck had a breakout year on the mound. He won 22 games, lost six, and won the Cy Young Award in the NL. Other players uh, in the rotation, Neil Heaton won 12, Bob Walk, John Smiley, Zane Smith, all did really well. They didn't have a great closer, a dominant closer, and they had Bill Landrum, who only had 13 saves, but he went 7-3 and, and had an ERA of 2.13, so probably some of these late games 
he ended up winning even if he didn't save them. But the pitching staff, I, I studied this pitching staff up and down, and they had 19 different pitchers pick up a win that year. So talk about, like, depth and contribution. I mean, I don't know if that's a record, but that's got to be close to a record. That. Well, and then you know, and then you look at the bullpen. So Vicente Palacios had three saves. Ted Power had seven saves. You mentioned Landrum with his thirteen. Bob Patterson had five. Uh, Bob Kipper had five. Stan Belinda um, had eight. Uh, who I, you know wound up being their closer in subsequent seasons. You know, uh, Jim Leland was one of those guys, and we saw this. We've seen this with other Pirates teams that were, and the '79 Pirates were another team like that. Chuck Tanner loved to utilize his bullpen. So it, a lot of it was, hey, just get me through a certain point of the game. I'm going to utilize that bullpen. I'm going to utilize the bench. We talked earlier about the way Jim Leland communicated with guys, used guys. I think everybody felt valued. Um, I mean, you mentioned you talk about that bench. I mean, those guys had meaningful at bats. They had a, they had bundles of at bats, and they were right. good players. I mean, that's a you know you you talk about that outfield. I mean. Bonds, Van Slyke, and Benia. I mean, and Van Slyke uh, in the middle, even though he was beginning to have back issues in his best offensive years, were, you know, he, he didn't put up monster numbers. He put up solid numbers, but a phenomenal gold glove center fielder. Yeah, he so, was all over the place, yeah. Oh, and, and you know, you, you, you talk about the, the infield. Sid Bream was solid defensively at first. Uh, up the middle, you had uh, Jose Lean, unfortunately known for his defense. He's known for his gaffe in 92. Right, um, right. Against the Braves, but he and Jay Bell just solid up the middle. Bell was one of those guys too, put up enormous sacrifice numbers. You talked about sabermetrics. Well, it's hard to apply today's, you know, the way we would measure things today to the way the game was played then, because it was just it was simply played differently. There, there wasn't as much worry about whether you got caught stealing. It was more about, you know, could you pressure the other team? Could you think about it? And, you know, really there's, there are things even with sabermetrics that, that might not measure that. So if you have a fast guy in first and he's a threat to steal, is that catcher going to call for more fastballs, um, making the hitter behind him more effective? And I, and I love sabermetrics, but I, I think that when you compare them from error to error, you have to do that with a grain of salt. Jay Bell was a tremendous right. sacrifice bunter and, uh, and, you know, batted second in the order and was able to move guys around, great hit and run guys. So a lot of those things that don't show up, I think in the box score, the sabermetrics, you know, comparisons from era to era uh, were relevant to that team and a big part of why they had success. No, I agree. I agree. Next up, so these Pirates were really a special bunch. And they ended up, you know, winning the division and they went on to the NL pennant. Remember, there was the divisional pennant round was added in 1969, but wild card wasn't in until 95. So the best in the East played the best in the West. And then they would move on to the World Series, the best of seven. They move on to the World Series. So they faced off against the Cincinnati Reds, who were the NL West winners and finished the season with 91 wins. Now, these Reds were managed by former Yankee and former Royal, the very feisty Lou Pinella. I think you could say he's feisty. Um, I once saw him in his bathrobe and slippers picking up the newspaper on Christmas morning in Tampa, but that's another story for another day. And I'm sure Lou doesn't like that image. <laughs> he said hi to me. I was out for a jog visiting my, uh, my in-laws. These Red Stockings had an excellent year, much like Pittsburgh. They had Hall of Famer Barry Larkin, and they also had power at the corner, uh, at the hot corner, Chris Sabo, the famous bespeckled uh, third baseman. They had Eric Davis, who was quite a badass in the outfield, power-wise, speed-wise. 
They also had Paul O'Neill, who would go on and play for the Yankees, who was a clutch player and would tend to break bats when he struck out, so he had kind of a temper. They had Billy Hatcher, who was a very able journeyman. Um, so this, I, I'd like to say this wasn't your father's big red machine, but they still had a very balanced attack, and they actually had the best batting average in the whole National League. They had a really aggressive uh, ordinary bullpen who called themselves the Nasty Boys, Norm Charlton, Randy Myers, and Rob Dibble, and they combined for 44 saves. It was a very uh, tight best of seven series. The Pirates did to- did take game one four to one. I mean four to three, I should say, in Cincinnati after falling behind three to three zero. Sid Bream was their hero. He hit a, a two run home run to contribute to the victory. Game two, Doug Drabeck pitched a superb complete game, but unfortunately it was the eight inning variety of complete games, so they lost a tight one to the Reds two to one. The next two games were back at Three Rivers, but they weren't as tight, and the Reds jumped on the Pirates starters in both games early, and the, the, the Reds came away with a 6-3 and then a 5-3 victory. So then all of a sudden it's game five in Pittsburgh, and the Pirates were, were facing elimination. But Doug Drabeck pitched a very, very gritty game, and they won 3-2, to two, and he outdueled his game one adversary, Tom Browning, who's, who's a, one of the better pitchers of that, of that year. So game six, back to Riverfront, another one of those other cookie-cutter uh, stadiums, but that was a very close affair. But unfortunately, the Reds pulled, pulled through with a 2-1 victory to eliminate the Pirates. Not much drama, and they were off to the World Series. The NLCS co-MVPs were Nasty Boys, Myers, and Dibble for shutting down the Pirates in the late innings of every game they won. Now, in the World Series, the Reds' pitching would dominate, and they would surprisingly sweep the Bash Brother A's when Mark McGuire, Jose Canseco, and Ricky Henderson, that was a real shock when that happened. Yep. At least the Pirates could feel better that they lost to the uh, World Series champions. But back on the Pirates, the main story behind the NLCS fizzle was the silence of their big guns, their big bats. Bonds and Benilla combined to hit 179 for that series, and they only had one RBI each in six games. So very disappointing. They both had an amazing regular season, but that didn't really translate into uh, big game success in the NLCS. And, and that became a theme, unfortunately. And, you know, when you look at, you know, the Reds, I mean, you had Tom Browning and Danny Jackson, two really good lefties. So yeah. that, that for sure hurt Bonds, um, you know, not to make excuses for him, but um, because you'd like to see the, the, the great ones rise above. You know, you talk about the, you know, Myers and Dibble combined to pitch 10 and two thirds innings. They allowed two hits and they struck out 17. They were amazing. The Pirates of 1990, and I think if you talk to the guys that were on the 90, 91, and 92 teams, they'll tell you they just weren't quite ready. They emerged on the scene. They were very solid. They were a good ball club. But I think all of them thought the following year, the 91 year, was truly their best year. The, the maturation, having gone through it once, um, and, and then the talent they had in 91, I really think they felt like, it wasn't a huge upset that they lost to the Reds at night. Right. So unfortunately, greater disappointment would come later because expectations were higher. Now, 91, as you mentioned, the Pirates, they, they, they came back. They were angry and ready to play. They barely tweaked their offensive arsenal. Their core was largely intact. Except Sid, Brees, uh, Sid Bream left as a free agent to sign with the uh, last place Atlanta Braves. And he was replaced in the field by second-year player Orlando Merced, who platooned a bit with Gary Reedus. No relation to Norman Reedus in The Walking Dead. So the Pirates pitching staff that was very solid the year before remained largely intact. 
John Smiley became their real ace. He supplanted Doug Drabeck, and he went 20-8, and eight, made the all-star team. Well, Doug, Dougie D, as I like to call him, but probably no one else does, Zane, Zane Smith, they got 15 and 16 wins respectively. That's, that, I mean, that's a solid three-man uh, part of the rotation. Now, the, interestingly, no Pirate has had 20 wins since Smiley did that. And Smiley, here's, a, here's another fun fact and a real deep cut. He holds the NL record for the least innings pitched to get to 20 wins, 207. That's just something just to put in your memory banks and wow your, wow your baseball geek friends at the next cocktail party once, once COVID allows us to have cocktail parties again. These Pirates, once again, their big guns were productive, yet Bonds hit 292, 25 home runs, 108, 116 RBIs. And as Rob alluded to, he, you, could, and he, you could have easily made a great case for him to be the MVP again. He stole 43 bases. Now, Benia's production dipped a little bit, but he was still superb. He hit 302, 18 home runs, 100 RBIs. That's, that's, a, that's a good year for anybody. Now, Jay Bell had his best offensive year to date, which also gave him a boost. Jay hit 16 home runs, 67 RBIs, and hit 270. So what did that – that all added up to an improvement of three wins over the previous year. So they had 98-win season, their second consecutive NL East crown. And rather than slugging it out with the hated Mets for the whole season, they basically blew away everybody and finished 14 games ahead of second-place St. Louis. During that season, only two games against whom they played um, had a better record head-to-head, and that was the Braves and the Dodgers. Now, who are they going to face in the pennant? The NL West champion, of course. And to get to their first World Series since 1979, they had to beat the Braves. Now, the, the Braves were managed by Bobby Cox, a longtime manager. is his second stint in the club. And they were the first NL team ever to go from worst to first in one season. So maybe Sid Bream was on to something when he jumped, when he jumped trains. And the Braves ended up with 94 wins after only 65 in 1990, which is a pretty spectacular turnaround. Now, this would be the first of 14 consecutive division titles for the Braves, who you could argue were a little disappointing because they only won one World Series during that whole run. But because they won World, one World Series and because – I don't like the Braves fans. They're transient and fickle. And Tomahawk Chop really hasn't aged well. So they're not going to get a No Cigar podcast out of me, probably. Okay, uh, fair enough. <laughs> and yes, I think, I think that they would admit to themselves that they were, that was a disappointment. Oh, I'm I mean, sure. One World Series in 14 years when you've won 14 division titles. Um, and the first four of those, you have to win one round to get to the, to get to the World Series. Um, exactly. And with the pitching staff they had, you know, they really did a fine job of building that team because they knew they were young. They knew they had some good pitching. You know, Breen was a very good glove man at first, good veteran guy. Pendleton mm-hmm. was a terrific fielder at third. They picked him up. And I don't think they really thought in their hearts of heart, heart of hearts, they were going to be that good that quickly. But everything clicked for them. They had a fine defensive team and, of course, outstanding pitching on the mound as well. Yeah, and pitching just their pitching staff was probably one of the best pitching staffs for the that longest stretch as any pitching staff probably ever. Just like one would one would leave, one would come in, and they would still win fifteen games each one. So they were pretty pretty special team. But so they were the Pirates' last remaining hurdle to get to the World Series. Now this this team was pretty solid offensively. You talked about Terry Pendleton, who was a surprising NL MVP. A fire plug of a guy who was just a solid clutch hitter. 
and real, had real hustle. They had a lightning quick leadoff man, Otis Nixon. They had Ron Gant, who was, looked like he was just made of muscle, who was their main power hitter. Dave Justice, who had a long, great career as an outfielder. And Lonnie Smith, who also was, a real, was, was quite a great baseball player for a long period of time. In his first year since coming over from St. Louis, Pendleton, as I mentioned, was an NL MVP. He led the NL in hits average in total bases, 22 home runs, 86 RBIs. So he had a great year, and he was rewarded for it. They also had a side note. They had this really fast but light-hitting outfielder. The guy hit 179. Good fielder, though, good base stealer. But he also played defensive back and returned kicks for the Falcons. So I'm going to cut Neon Deion Sanders a little bit of slack for not being a great hitter with the Braves because he had six interceptions for the Falcons. He returned one for a touchdown and also had a kickoff return for a touchdown. So that's a that's a special talent right there. We can say I'm just throwing that in. You know. Now let, let me let me uh, go back. I'm going to take you back to 1952. And so if if fans are old enough to remember Deion Sanders, they'll remember him being helicoptered from Falcons practice. <clears throat> to the Braves baseball games. Right, big, right. you, know, they had to, you know, he had to, had to practice with the football team, but then he had to go play in the baseball games. So in 1952, Dick Grote was finishing his senior year at Duke, and he was playing uh, in the NBA. He made the all-rookie team. Dick Grote was a phenomenal basketball player. I mean, it took 35, 40 years for guys to break his records at Duke, and he wasn't allowed to play as a freshman. Um, that, that were the rules that were still intact. So uh, he missed a class, and he went to the owner of the team, who's the Fort Wayne Pistons, uh, subsequently the right. Detroit, and said, I can't miss any more classes, or they'll drum me out of Duke, and I've got to get my degree. Um, and so they hired him a private plane, and he never practiced with a team. He flew to games, and then would fl- they would fly him back to Duke to continue his studies. So think about that. I mean, they were – That's pretty, sm- that's pretty amazing. Gone like across town in 1952 when air travel wasn't exactly routine, they were flying Dick Grote. He was that great of an athlete and that great of a player that they would fly him to the various places that the Fort Wayne Pistons were playing. So that's a really cool, I had no idea about that. I mean, I know Dick Dick Grote is a great baseball player, did not know about his basketball background. Oh, phenomenal. All American. I mean, he was one one of the greats in college basketball history. He was incredible. Yeah, I know that uh, Dave DeBusher played for the Knicks, also played uh, played a bit for the White Sox, but probably uh, not as great a baseball career as Grove at all. But right, no, no. So that's that's a very cool story. Talk about talk about being a baller, so to speak. So we talked about the Braves already. So their hitters and their fielders, but their true strength, as we alluded to earlier, was their pitching staff. They had four solid starters. Tom Glavin had 20 wins, Steve Avery 18, Charlie Liebrand 15, and John Smoltz 14. And these guys started 141 of the Braves games that season, just four guys. So it doesn't happen that much anymore. So now the stage is set for the National League Championship Series to see who has the honor of going on to the 1991 World Series. It is the battle-hardened, solid pitching, solid hitting, solid fielding Pittsburgh Pirates versus the upstart worst to first Atlanta Braves who were just starting their amazing run of division championships. To find out what happens, come back next week for the next installment of the Close But No Cigar Sports Podcast, where I will be joined once again by Rob King for the part two of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Peace out. 
The Close But No Cigar Sports Podcast is a Pug and Monkey production. And as always, I would like to thank Lobo and his band, Checky Brown, for letting us use their song, Hippie Boy, as our theme song.